everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> okay, so today we're doing a bit of a different episode and we're going to do some um, listener Q&As. So this is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be as, as it's still going to be topical, but it's going to be a little bit more, uh, I suppose, specific to um, like an example of, of what kind of some behavior modifications or diet modifications might look like for an individual. Now, obviously, this is not medical advice. This is just us giving some examples of what things could look like. And, you know, this is just for educational purposes. But we wanted to really talk about some practical things people could do in some of these instances. And um, this conversation, I mean, a lot of our conversations are like this anyway, where, you know, Dave's talking from his experience, I'm talking from mine. We generally see eye to eye and there's some things we do a little bit differently that might come out a little bit more in this conversation because we are talking about different ways that we would actually engage with different clients um but it'll be a it's conversation also, it's also healthy okay is, like yeah, like a lot of the time like you know i've been conversing with jake for a really really long period of time and there's definitely things that we can uh differ on yeah okay but a lot of time we just have a discussion about it and see where each other's coming from yeah okay yeah. and obviously that's just an opportunity for a learning experience most and then of the time. I, I normally just post about you and, and just clue you out and say how, how wrong you are. <laughs> it's all fine so the first question we had that we wanted to jump into <laughs> escapes me what do we say oh, oh we alopecia, alopecia. A, we, had, we had a question about alopecia we i don't did. know what the direct question was so the, the question alopecia. was simply, what can I do to actually pause or reverse my alopecia? Now, that question in, of, in and of itself is actually, I guess, a little bit vague because there's different types of alopecia. So maybe we'll start with that. Yeah. So, yeah, with that question, it'd be good to establish what type of alopecia you're really dealing with. Okay. So probably to answer the question, we've got to talk about the two major ones that, that mm. um, tend to be the bigger problem. Okay. So you do have an alopecia. It's called areata. Okay, I'm pretty sure that's the pronunciation. And so for people who are not familiar with this, okay, this is basically like an autoimmune disease, really. Okay, So essentially what's happening is that your immune system is actually attacking the hair follicles. And actually, without going too far down this rabbit hole, okay, but a big factor behind that can be having issues with a particular type of T cell. Okay, They're called T regulatory cells. And one of the roles of T regulatory cells is they actually allow you to recognize your own immune system and basically protecting you or stopping you from getting something like an autoimmune disease, okay? Uh, and actually what's really important to help with T regulatory cells and the production of T regulatory cells is actually short chain fatty acids. And the big one here is butyrate, okay? Or, you know, butyric acid. Obviously there's all these different types of short chain fatty acids, you know, acetate, propionate, butyrate, valerate, okay? People may um, not really know much about these. So these are produced by bacteria. These are like good, helpful compounds that bacteria help make, yeah? Yeah. And, and also, obviously, you can get the short-chain fatty acids directly out of the food source itself. Yeah. So yes, you can eat, obviously, things like prebiotics that obviously help with the production of the short-chain fatty acids, okay? And basically, the microbiome, like within your colon, your large intestine, they come along. They basically feed on the indigestible matter, like the food that's sitting there and fermenting, and then they produce the short-chain fatty acids. And some of these bacteria strains that can really help with short-chain fatty acids are like bifidobacterium and pterococcus, but I won't go too far down that rabbit hole. 
So maybe to, to answer this question in regards to if it is to do with issues around the T regulatory cells yep. and the alopecia uh, areata, okay? Well, anything that would actually help with T regulatory cells. So glutathione actually helps with T regulatory cells, okay? I, I might say in this instance, and, and let me know if you would disagree with me, I would actually probably go for a little bit more of a bioavailable form of glutathione uh, just because it sort of gets uptake in the cell just a little bit more efficiently. I'm not saying it's better than uh, endocytocysteine or better than something like a liposomal glutathione. I think it's a little bit underrated. I probably have the tendency to use a little bit more than you, okay? But I know you sometimes like to use a bit of a blend, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's an acetyl glutathione. I guess one of the issues with acetyl glutathione that I want to make clear is that there's not generally a lot of research around it that could be... Uh, a bit of the downside, okay? But I do tend to find for people who've got issues with just producing glutathione, maybe issues with the enzymes like glutathione synthetase and maybe gene mutations like the GSS gene, then S-acetyl glutathione is going to be really effective here, okay? You, you would say anything else that might help with glutathione production or support it, uh, something like ALA, alpha-lipoic acid, milk thistle, but I don't really like to go for like milk thistle tablets, okay? I tend to go for something like a milk thistle tea. Some people might argue that it's that's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit weak. It's not that strong, okay? But I do like it to be a little bit more gentle in this instance. But anything that's actually helping with a little bit of like uh, liver detoxification or liver cleansing, okay, is actually going to help with like glutathione production or have a knock-on effect to glutathione production, okay? But then the other thing that I would say is just like looking at increasing the consumption of butyrate, that's really going to help. And that could just be through things like a good quality organic ghee or something like an organic butter, or you could actually take butyric acid itself. A lot of the time we can use, okay, there's a sodium butyrate. I think you can get like a sodium potassium butyrate and there's a calcium butyrate, okay? And there's obviously a lot of documentation around like using butyric acid to actually help with things like IBD conditions like Crohn's. Yeah. So, so what you're saying here so far, that would be pretty consistent with what you would do kind of for any autoimmune condition in essence, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're covering a lot of bases there, okay? Because mm. obviously a lot of the things that I'm going to, I'm talking about there, it's not just going to help with the alopecia. It's going to help with a lot of other mechanisms mm. uh, within the body. I mean, having like glutathione, you're going to help with oxidative stress, like free radical damage. And obviously I'd say like, you know, glutathione is, is also going to help with a huge amount of aspects around the liver, like liver detoxification, you know, obviously it's the master antioxidant. Some people might argue that maybe melatonin mm. is a little bit more powerful than glutathione. But either way, like glutathione plays a key role in phase one, phase two, liver detoxification and, and deals with a lot of like really stubborn xenobiotics, xenoestrogens, plastics, heavy metals, okay? And actually helps with our ability to deal with like bacterial metabolites and bacterial byproducts, okay? So I think you're just covering a lot of bases. So how does someone know if the alopecia they have is autoimmune in nature compared to non-autoimmune? It's a really good question. Okay, so from my understanding, it's not something that I deal with all the time and I'm sure you're the same, okay? It tends to be like really, really patchy from my understanding. If it was within the hair, it's just like, boom, sort of- uh, Yeah, it's not just like a general thing. Yeah, they, they probably can't see, see what I'm doing. Yeah, okay, but I'm basically <laughs> saying that you know, sort of like just these bald patches just randomly yeah. through, the, through the hair, through the scalp. And I think as far as I, I can understand is it also spreads to other areas of the body as well. Uh, so it, it actually can cover the entire body. So that's probably important for people to understand, like, so they can go, okay, that's really mm. what I'm looking at here. Mm. I'm mm. sure you'd agree with that one. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, presumably someone in this instance, are gonna, you're going to go get blood tests and you're going to start to be able to identify stuff through bloods as well. We should just mention being autoimmune in nature. This is where 
maybe more so even than some of the other types we're going to talk about, diet plays a huge, huge role. And obviously, if there is this inflammatory trigger that's going on or this immune trigger going on, you do need to look at diet. And so that would be and at a really basic level, like if you don't know where to start, this is where I would suggest looking into maybe something like a paleo or an autoimmune paleo diet. That may not be the diet you're going to do for your whole life, but it might be a good starting point just to pull out some of those really key inflammatory foods. Yeah. And I mean, and obviously addressing, like we're always going to say this, addressing the gut lining. Yeah. yeah okay. Because that, that's obviously where the high majority of these uh, autoimmune complications are actually stemming from yep. yeah, okay yeah interesting enough like i just had a thought there i mean um you could look at peptide therapy mm. you know i probably won't go too far down this rabbit hole because i know it's an area that you and me are diving deeper and deeper into but something like uh, ghk or copper peptide i mean they do actually use that for things like male pattern baldness mm. so they do use it in the cosmetic realm so before people sort of like go oh my god like peptides just understand they are using in the cosmetic realms okay pretty commonly yeah like yeah. a lot of products actually do contain small amounts of copper peptides so it yeah. is not that un- uncommon and i i think it's becoming a little bit more documented to actually help with things like male pattern baldness and yeah. so forth so potentially could you use it for a little bit of rejuvenation for that patchiness and yeah. more hair loss within the scalp for sure i also think maybe even looking into c60 or carbon 60 which is a an antioxidant which is suspended in oil and you can apply it, you can consume it or you can apply it topically as well um, that is something that i have used with a lot of people with hair issues and it seems quite effective as well so that would be worth looking into yeah so should we move like we we obviously came this a little bit yeah. uh yeah a little bit more rapid than we uh than we normally would but yeah so let's touch on androgenic alopecia yeah. So you got alopecia. There's like male androgenetic version. Okay. I would probably say like the, the, the big issue around this would be to do with uh, DHT. So dihydrotestosterone. Okay. I think the hair follicle is actually quite sensitive to, mm. to, to DHT. And actually when mm. the, when the levels get pretty high with DHT oh, and, and once, once again, guys, like I just want to make it clear that we're not saying DHT is bad. Okay. No, it's like 10 times more bioactive than testosterone. And, you actually do need it for enlargening of the of the prostate, and before people you know think that's a bad thing, you know obviously the prostate plays a key role in like spermatogenesis and actually helping with sperm. So these are necessary processes, okay? But obviously some people can just have too high levels of DHT, and I'm pretty sure what that can do is like just shrink it, yeah. like shrink the the hair follicles and decrease their production, and so. You know, you would say that if people are having issues with that conversion process, okay, the guys are having the, the issue with that conversion proce- process, so the testosterone is getting converted more into DHT. One factor behind that is that they don't have really anything to inhibit, you know, a 5-alpha reductase. Um, something that's, that can be really good to actually help to inhibit 5-alpha reductase, I mean, one thing is zinc. Uh, one thing I want to say on that, like obviously we're big advocates of zinc, yeah, okay, but I think it's getting to a point where people can get like carried away with zinc because like people say, you know, zinc's a precursor to testosterone and then people are like having like anywhere from 60 to 180 grams of like like an elemental zinc or a zinc picolinate and we gravitate a little bit more towards zinc alcarnosine. Why? Because it just allows the zinc to stick around the gut longer, helps with heat shock protein, and actually helps with the mucosal lining. So just just need to understand where your zinc to copper ratios are, yeah. like understand where your copper levels are. But yeah, sometimes people might be going overboard from that perspective, especially when it comes to 5-alpha reductase and aromatase because obviously zinc is so good to inhibit both. And the other thing is just, you could look at things like reishi, 
Yeah. That actually helps to inhibit 5-alpha reductase. can be a little bit underrated from that perspective. Okay. Uh, EGCGs, powerful polyphenols you get from green tea. Cell palmetto, I probably wouldn't recommend that. Okay. Um, I also don't use it. I, I do prefer what you just mentioned there, EGCG. Um, yeah. yeah, cell palmetto. I mean, I, I do use it sometimes if I've got clients coming off finasteride. So if they are using a pharmaceutical to block the HT, then sometimes I'll use it as a, sort of like a bridging supplement, but it's not my preferred by any means. Yeah. And then you've got women's, okay? So you actually do get women's androgenetic mm. alopecia. I'd say this, I mean, it's, what's probably important for people to understand that because this is obviously a lot of, this is hormonal influence. And it, for that reason, it can be temporary, okay? So once mm. you actually realign the hormonal imbalances, then you're actually going to help with the alopecia. So I want to make that clear, okay? I'll probably say, and, and once again, I'm sure you would probably agree with me. I, I think it's becoming more common this type of alopecia in women and that thinning i'm pretty sure is just more towards the center and i think there's a lot more complexities here so i don't feel like i could just give a clear answer okay because that could be toxic exposure it could be just high stress load or stress exposure i tend to find thyroid complications okay like huge around this and you do see a lot of thinning especially when uh People do have hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's and so forth. It really affects the hair, probably because there'll be some issues around zinc. So a lot of time, if there is like zinc deficiency, you've got hydrochloric acid issues, okay? Issues around like H. pylori. That's going to create some issues around zinc, okay? And then definitely, you know, brittle hair, like hair loss, mm. definitely can be linked to zinc. And also like 49% of the world agricultural soils are deficient in zinc. Okay? So it doesn't generally bode well for zinc. Okay. So, you know, uh, but it also can be, you know, PCOS. Okay. So that could be a factor. Well, that'd be a common correlation. Yeah. Some people yeah. suffer from both. Yeah. Yeah. A contraceptive pill potentially as well, like menopause, pregnancy. I think don't women sort of generally notice that the hair can be pretty thick, like initially, like during your yeah. pregnancy. And I think it's sort of like post where it can just yeah. like fall out in clumps. Yeah. Okay. Um, once again, like I'm not saying an expert in that realm, okay, but that's obviously just stuff that I've read. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, what do you think in, in terms of like, you know, it's, it gets a bit harder to sort of like give direct, you know, like, like there's yeah, certain I mean, supplements this, again, I might be able to mention. Generic. Yeah, like rhodiola, okay, like potentially, because I don't I know that does actually help with hair growth. I mean, it's adaptogen, so it might help with the stress related issues. Yeah. Uh, a biotin that actually helps yeah. to thicken up the hair. Okay. That could yeah. be some issues with, People just going to town on like things like egg whites and all that type of stuff. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A few other things I'd consider. Um, there are some like natural DHT blocking shampoos. So you, instead of, you don't always have to use something which is going to systemically block DHT. You can use yeah. it more, you know, localized to the actual area you're wanting to block it. So, um, you know, if you do look online, you can often find a few different, you know, this is where things like Medoxidil would be an example of a pharmaceutical, which I wouldn't normally recommend, but obviously there's more natural versions people can use. Um, I also am a big fan of rosemary oil. I don't know if you've oh, seen yeah, some yeah, of the yeah, research yeah, on yeah, that. I yeah, definitely have. Yeah, yeah. Pretty amazing. So I often get clients to add a couple of drops to their shampoo, or they can just add a couple of drops to their hair after they've showered and do that a couple of times a week. Um, and there are some studies on that. So if people want to look into that. I think that, there's a few essential oils from memory that actually can be pretty good for the hair follicles and so forth. And Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are a few. This, I did see a study where they compared rosemary to minoxidil and it was as effective. So that's why that's what I, I earn sight of. But yeah, I do and think even, And even some, because of some of the saturated fats in something like coconut oil, like yeah. the, the luric acid, that, that could actually be quite 
good for the scalp, yeah, okay, and good for mm-hmm. the hair follicles, okay. I do really like a lot of the, the, the research around GHK. And I think obviously the advantage if you did go down the line of having something like GHK is you're actually really going to help with the uh, wound healing. You're going to help with the epithelium. And that's probably going to have a, a bit of a massive ricochet effect okay, yeah. to a lot of these other issues that we're talking about. Yeah. And one last thing I wanted to mention on that as well is, and it's not so much specific to alopecia, but more just hair loss generally, and especially amongst females, it is always worth checking where your iron stores are at. In the clients that I work with who are experiencing hair loss, I'd say that would be one of the leading causes. And I do recall seeing one study where they had, I forget how many people it was done, and it was done in women. Um, and it was over 70% of these women who are experiencing hair loss were deficient in iron. And so iron, massive, massive you know, issue here when it comes to hair loss. You've obviously mentioned zinc. Often zinc and iron deficiency go hand in hand anyway. Yeah. So if, that, if, if the iron is the factor there, okay, like I, I would just definitely do some exploration into what's going on to the with the enterocytes. That's a type of epithelium within mm. the gastrointestinal tract, high dominance within the small intestine, what's going on there, okay? Because obviously that's where we're uptaking the iron and then it's got to get converted from ferric iron to ferrous iron. And also what's going on with things like hepcidin levels, yeah. um, viral infections, okay, bacterial infections, okay? So see what's going on from, from that perspective as well. So, so let's move on, but let's actually yep. use that as our sort of segue. Another question we actually had was someone was saying they're seeing all these influencers talk about organ meats and they're seeing all these supplement companies pop up selling different organ meats. And how do you know which type of organ to take? And so you, we've just talked to them about iron and that's, that's probably a good one to start with. One of the supplements that we use, we both use with clients would be a desiccated spleen because spleen, what, five times higher in iron than liver. And I mean, it's, it's, the highest food source I think, of iron. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's got the highest concentration of heme iron, okay? I mean, obviously, one thing we want to make clear is we're always going to advocate, obviously, consuming more organ meats, okay? Yeah. But we're definitely pro these desiccated organ meat supplements, okay? And I just think if you're just willing, if you're not really willing to to obviously consume the organ meats, okay, then they are a, a good alternative, okay? Yeah. I, I, I would lean towards, like, let's see if we, what organ meats we can get in first, okay? Yeah. And then... What are, what are some of these other ones, okay, that we could just get through the supplemental form? Yep. And I think it's just probably really important to, to understand like, okay, which ones are going to really work for you? And then yeah. you probably want to get to a point, I'm sure you probably agree with this, where you actually, just like you would come across like, you know, uh, different types of animal proteins and so forth, is just do a bit of an organ meat supplement sort of rotation, okay? So yep. you're getting the benefit of, because we're probably not going to be able to talk about all of them, okay? But we, mm. we're going to use some examples. But, you know, because even like the spleen, I would say that, you know, because the spleen actually plays a key role in things like lymphocytes. Okay? Yeah. So we're talking about things like T cells. So your acquired immune system or your secondary line of defense. So I'd say there's just some immune, immunity issues yes. there as well. I mean, you might spot this in terms of someone having very, very low lymphocytes. And then, yes, there's the issues around the iron. Like I, I would have probably a tendency to use something like a desiccated spleen, uh, especially for pregnant women, yeah, okay, yep. because it's got the supportive aspects around the immune system. But you might lean a little bit more towards a, a desiccated spleen if there was just more issues around the acquired immune system. Yeah. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. You know, if I've got, like, if you have a client who is low in iron and has compromised immune function, it just makes total sense. Like you're killing two birds with one stone. You may as well. Um, what about some of the other options? Why would you use a maybe a heart? Yeah, I'll, 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 I probably started to use. It's, it's funny that you brought that one up. <laughs> okay, because I probably started to use heart a little bit more, like beef heart. Look, 
one of the, I would say one of the big advantages, because I, I mean, obviously it's a bit of a rabbit hole with some of these. Okay? And of course you can just say like the traditional thing of like, okay, you consume that organ meat and actually yeah. going to help with that particular organ. Okay, there's yeah. a little bit more to it as well. But beef heart is really high, high in coenzyme Q10. So yes, we can talk about the aspects of like, helping to shuttle free fatty acids into self energy. So we can talk about it from an ATP perspective. I just like, I'd rather talk about it from just from uh, just a cardiovascular perspective, okay, just actually helping with heart health. And that's pretty relevant at the moment, okay, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, I don't know about you, Jake, but I actually think people need a lot more protection from that perspective for many reasons. So I'm tending to find that I'm, because I, I do tend to find that, that, you know, beef heart can be a little bit easier to consume because it actually tastes pretty good in a slow yeah. cook and it's got a little bit more of a meaty taste. Yep. Okay. I think uh, it's my, my most preferred organ to eat. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's definitely up there. You know, I think, you know, what one of my favorites is, and maybe we'll talk about that sweetbreads. I absolutely love sweetbreads. Okay. It's the thymus gland for people who don't know. I might give you a bit of a, uh, a bit of a tip of how you can make them uh, taste pretty amazing. But yeah, like I agree with you, like beef heart, yeah, okay, it's a little bit more meaty. But yeah, with some people, I have to, I use the beef heart supplement and I'm using it just to actually help to, well, to protect areas like the myocardium and the pericardium, okay? So is there any aspects that you you would you would add uh, there? I mean, that's that's mostly it. And, and like you said, obviously the CoQ10. And why would someone have a high need for CoQ10? Like in terms of like, why would they gravitate a little bit more towards that? Yeah, like what, what kind of individual might have a higher need? Yeah, well, look, I, what, what I would say if there, if there is like sort of like cardiovascular complications there, yeah. okay? I also might say like, uh, is there some energy issues there? Okay? Yeah. That could be another factor, okay? Probably not so much around the fat mobilization aspect, but just like just lacking, you know, lacking a bit of energy. Yeah. You know, heart complications, maybe that's showing up with like palpitations and yeah. all those types of things. That That's probably what I would be leaning that particular individual towards something like a beef heart. And then potentially people who are on statin medication, maybe that'd be a good food to add yep. in there as well. Is yep. that going to yep. deplete CoQ10? Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, blood, blood pressure medications, those types of things, yeah, yeah, okay, that I'd go more towards a beef heart. Maybe talk about thymus, Yeah. okay? So I'm a big fan of sweetbreads. So for people who don't know that is the thymus gland. Now, thymus is really important for lymphocytes. So it's really important for T cells. So you consuming thymus okay desiccated thymus is actually going to help with t-cells we're talking about things like thymosin thymic factor these types Mm. of things and i I would just say if there's issues around the lymphocytes like a a severe lowering of those and they've been pretty low for a long period of time i like i i've definitely used like thymus with a lot of uh, clients who do have issues around that acquired immune system Mm. i'm but I, I'd probably go more for consumption as well. Just a bit of a tip with the thymus gland, just soak in a bit of goat's milk and then you dust it in something like buckwheat flour, could be an alternative flour, arrowroot, whatever that might be. Just dip in a little bit of egg, put some almond meal or some sort of crumb on there and then pan fry it in butter. And there you go. You've got like a pretty amazing, sort of like a chicken nugget really. Okay, so <laughs> uh, there's a... Don't want to turn turn it into a cooking show, okay, but that's uh, <laughs> tastes pretty amazing. Yeah. And this could be one I often combine both spleen and thymus together for some of those clients, uh, some of those immune dysfunction. Yeah, I know you talk about this. Sometimes a, a good thing to do is just mix it with some beef mints, yeah, okay, yeah. and then you can put something like liver mints, okay, and you can just make uh, you know like burgers. You can mm. like make meatballs, whatever that might be, okay. So that can be a good way of like getting it in as well. I mean, do we want to talk about liver? It seems like we're you know like we sort of covered liver, like we we do cover liver a lot. Yeah, okay? liver is kind of just like the more yeah, 
generic. well like if, if, well and even a lot of these organ meat supplements nowadays like even if you're talking about like you've got a beef heart i think it's still got a little Nothing bit of liver in half, there half, yeah, okay. yeah yeah so yeah maybe um, let's skip liver but do we i mean there's a few other options we want to talk about testicle or thyroid or drain or do you want to touch on any of those yeah well one, one that i actually this this one i find pretty interesting but like you could use like a desiccated adrenal glands okay oh, yeah. Interesting enough with desiccated adrenal glands, they actually do have, it does actually contain DAO. So it actually does have yeah. diamine oxidase. Okay. Yeah. So potentially if someone's got like, obviously like histamine issues, okay, yeah. a lot of allergies, food sensitivities, skin reactions, adrenal glands actually might be a, a pretty good option there. Yeah. Uh, I think they've got like a reasonable amount of B12. Okay. Like selenium. Okay. So maybe if there's some support there around the thyroid as well. Okay. Cause selenium, helps with the conversion mm. of T4 to T3, okay? You know, I don't mind some of these obscure ones because I, I think a lot of the time they're not necessarily getting used that much. You know, beef thyroid. I mean, do you have the tendency to use beef thyroid? I mean, desiccated thyroid on a regular... I mean, obviously, it's going to support thyroid function. Okay? Yeah, look, I have used it with clients who, you know, are sort of exhibiting hypothyroidism symptoms and, and blood work and they're not wanting to pursue medication and they're just wanting something we can do naturally to help support it so that's tends to be more the case where i'm using it one of the one another one i do like and i just thought of it okay i do use it regularly it's like a beef pancreas pancreas is, is generally pretty hard to find like as as a direct organ meat yeah okay and not i've never really tried it but i'm not sure like it's not probably not one of the most tastiest organ meats going around <laughs> but why like like beef pancreas okay because you, you're actually helping with pancreatic enzymes yeah so I would say, you know, people who've got like severe dysbiosis, they're really struggling to like break down food, uh, fat maldigestion, fat malabsorption, like protein synthesis issues, protein maldigestion, protein malabsorption, issues with carbohydrates. Yeah, okay. That's covering a lot of bases because it's actually mm. helping the pancreatic enzymes like protease, amylase, lipase, helps with trypsine. So it really helps with protein synthesis and also just helps with pancreatic function. So if there's like pancreatitis, okay, I'd probably have a bit more of a tendency to, to use something like a beef pancreas, even with things like H. pylori, because uh, obviously these people have like massive problems just breaking down food and that's just going to give them a lot of support from that perspective. Okay, mm. so it is one that I uh, do use quite frequently. Is there anything you want to add from that perspective? No, I think that's good. Uh, one thing that maybe we differ with a little bit is I tend not to start with organ supplements all that often. Like if I've got a client who maybe their blood work is showing that there's a number of deficiencies, the way I normally come at it is I would ideally like to use, so I, what I'm going to start with is actually just the direct nutrient that I need at that time and moment. So yep. say there's B vitamin issues, I'm just going to use a B complex. And then after I've, I've ideally corrected some of those deficiencies, then I normally move into an organ supplement. And for me, that's all, or, you know, obviously I'm going to recommend the eating organs one way, but if they're not eating organs, the organ supplement for me comes second after I've dealt with the initial kind of issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, that's you know, that's sort of something I would use. I'd say that's like a longer term, just for general health and longevity, this is something good, which is to have in. But initially, if you're trying to put out the flames, I'm going to use something a little bit more direct. It's, it's a great point. I, okay, I'll give you an example on that one. So like, you know, with the exception of something like beef pancreas, I mean, that can be one that I yeah, there's a few exceptions. Yeah. yeah, okay. But you know, something like beef gallbladder. Now, obviously, that could yeah can be good for bile. Yeah, okay. Uh, cholesterol. Okay, all these types of things. So, but look, look, if if someone thinks that they're going to have something like a beef gallbladder, and then that's going to help with something like SIBO or like CIFO. Okay, like just from an impact perspective, like Tudka is yeah. is is going to be way better in that instance. So. 
once again, like I'm not saying that it's not going to be beneficial to some extent, but it's not really going to be, it's not going to have as much bang for your buck yeah. as something like, uh, like a Tudka. Yeah. At the end of the day, these are foods, you know, like even if it's coming in a capsule, it's still a food. It's still a desiccated dried food supplement. And so these are obviously, you know, amazing to add in. There's a whole mantra of food is medicine to an extent. Yes, I agree with that, but also to another extent, no, you know, like it's simply not as concentrated and not going to have the same impact as something which is, you know, literally designed and made to be concentrated. And so I guess like, you know, the way I look at it would be food is enough to keep a healthy person healthy. or well, it's enough to like sustain and maintain health. But if someone is super, super unhealthy, then food alone is not normally going to be enough to get that person to a state of health. And so saying there with organ supplements, if these are actually foods, well, it's probably not going to be enough in and of itself to get that person from being in you know, a state of disease to suddenly being in a state of health. Should we move to the next one? Let's do it. Uh, what one we're going to cover next? I'm pretty sure it was the prostate. Prost- prostate. Yeah. 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 Do you remember what the direct question I, was? I or? don't actually remember the direct question here. I think it was just something around prostate advice. And yeah, so let's just cover this one a little bit more broadly. Yeah, I mean, like, so if we just talk about, you know, like prostatitis, because that's probably a good place to start. And what I'm talking about is like, Obviously, when the prostate gland becomes swollen, inflamed, you know, bacteria can be a, a big factor around that. I think, like, obviously, we've talked about in yeah. previous podcasts about the link to, to the, the gut, to the reproductive uh, yeah. organ sort of link, and especially how complex that is for men. I don't th- I'm not sure about the percentage, but I think they say acute bacterial infections might be in the realms of up to about 10%, okay, causing like that prostatitis. But I, I also know that um, I can't remember the direct stat, but uh, with prostatitis, there can be a link to having like a lot of IBS condition, like IBS symptoms, and also more depression, anxiety. I'd probably argue that's probably coming from the bacterial issues as well. But there's definitely some links here, like with prostatitis, you know, like negative gram bacteria, like Escherichia coli, having decreased levels of previtella. Okay, um, that actually helps to mitigate inflammation. Hence, why the the, the guy would get like even like, you know, more pelvic pain, exacerbation of the pelvic pain, having lower levels of lactobacillus, that can be a factor, but then an increase in proteobacteria, that's negative gram bacteria. And there's certain strains that have been a little bit more linked to things like prostatitis, okay? Um, Staphylococcus aureus, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas. And the thing with those, yes, uh, you know, two of those are negative gram bacteria, with all negative gram bacteria, okay? But the... The link here is like 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 SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, because all those bacterial strains that I'm talking about there have this link to SIBO, and so I'd say there's there's this huge link to to SIBO mm. when it comes to things like prostatitis and inflammation of the prostate. Okay. Now, so in also- that instance, so what would be important there is is simply ask yourself, do I also exhibit SIBO, SIBO symptoms? Yeah. So if someone's got bloating and they've got undulating bowel movements, and you know they have sensitivity to high fiber foods and whatnot then that's kind of a good example of what you're talking about. And so part of that is going to be addressing the SIBO using antimicrobial specific to the SIBO. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's there's things you could put in place just to to mitigate it, you know, something like bacillus strains, like a megaspore biotic, you know, things that, good around like negative gram bacteria like maybe uber ursi okay but like like i don't want to like go too far down that realm okay but i know like also issues around the prostate can be linked to you know even things like plastics okay like bpa like pesticides they can play a big impact from that perspective and i think they actually impact you know certain like cytochrome p450 enzymes i think it's cyp1a2 and cyp3a4 okay so it actually impacts those I would say that 
you know, removal of things like BPA, okay, exposure to herbicides and pesticides would actually really help with the prostate function as well. Okay. So a really common overlooked one there with, with the BPA is receipts. So a lot of receipts are made using like a thermal paper, which is high in BPA. So that would be something, that's something like for PCOS clients, and I'm normally, you know, pretty aware of that, and I don't want them sort of handling receipts. And I even recommend if you've got clients who, you know, do have PCOS, some of these hormonal issues, um, and they're working, say, retail, or they're working jobs where they are handling receipts all the time, I actually try to get them to wear gloves, or, or you can get like silicon fingertip kind of things that you can you can wear instead, so you're not having to handle the receipt all the time. Yeah, great point. And like I'd probably say there's also, there's going to be the issue around the, the five alpha reductase. So that sort of pops up again. So obviously we've already talked about some of the things that can help with that. And obviously the, the green tea, reishi, zinc alcarnosine. But one thing that can also be pretty beneficial here because you can actually look at research where it's actually helped with like PSA levels. So helping people who've got like prostate cancer is just like pomegranate. Okay. Yeah. So even like it can be as simple as like pomegranate juice, okay, or pomegranate extract, okay. Mm -hmm. But that is actually shown to lower PSA levels. And once again, I'm not saying it's a cure for prostate cancer, okay. But obviously, that's shown to have some some huge benefits around mm -hmm. making sure that there's not a huge enlargening of the prostate in that instance. Okay. Yeah. So that could be worth exploring as well. Like you know, uh, pomegranate. Okay. It can be once again as simple as just as a good quality pomegranate juice, or once again a pomegranate extract. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's easier to find those things now. I've seen pomegranate juice popping up a lot more commonly. Yeah. I mean, I don't, like once again, if because a lot of the time we can use like a pomegranate husk, okay, that's got huge benefits for testosterone and increases salivary testosterone by 24%. Okay. Um, whether it has the same, I'm, I'm not sure if it has the, mm. any of the same impacts around the, the you know, the PSA levels. Mm. I don't know if that's documented. Okay. But, but it's obviously, going to SIBO. So if someone did have more of the SIBO types. Yeah. Symptoms. I mean, it's got benefits around negative gram bacteria, candida and yeast, but you know, huge benefits around like uh, protozoa parasites and parasitic infection as well. It's very, mm. and, and, and the good thing is it just doesn't have that negative impact on your lactobacillus levels yeah. and your bifidobacterium levels. And once again, low lactobacillus levels have been linked to actually causing things like prostatitis and inflammation of the prostate. Okay. Mm. So mm. yeah, there's probably uh, maybe that's a bit more of a quick fire one. Okay. But mm. uh, that would be some of the major things that, you know, well, major, yeah, I think it's important major... to go back to what we were talking about with five alpha reductase earlier, because a lot of those things are going to be beneficial there. So the, the green tea, the zinc, all that stuff is going to be definitely worth it. Well, prostatitis, in. I know a favorite is, is generally cell palmetto. Okay. That does yeah, get talked true. about. Yeah. It does get talked about a lot. I, I think maybe like initially just to maybe mitigate that, it could definitely have some benefits. Yeah. I, I would say like just using things to just bring down the inflammatory load would actually help as well. Mm -hmm. Like my go-to, which is sort of like, you know, nature's ibuprofen, okay. It's like curcumin and then nature's like, you know, paracetamol and Panadol is like PEA and using a combination of like something like PEA, like pro-resolving mediators, uh, enzymatically derived from fatty acids, and then like a curcumin, just to bring down the inflammatory load mm. can be a, uh, just a good approach initially. I'm not saying that's going to rectify it, okay, mm. but just to bring down the inflammation and actually help with some of that discomfort in the, in the pelvic region and the inflammation in the pelvic region. Mm. So let's do one more question. Now, this one, uh, this is going to be, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a rabbit hole. We'll see how we go. So this person has asked that basically they're recovering or have recovered from disordered eating. And so what they're saying is if they're on, on this, this pathway to recovering from disordered eating and they're starting to reintroduce foods, but they're getting all these food sensitivities and reactions that are causing digestive symptoms, 
how do they balance those two things? How do they balance introducing new foods back in with the reality that a lot of these foods are causing them digestive issues? It's, it's, it's really a great question. And I, I think it's definitely makes the brain tick over. Okay. Yeah. Quite a lot. Okay. Because like, even if you just look at like some of these eating disorders, okay, like dive into that a little bit, like obviously not too deep. Okay. But anorexia has actually been linked to, to some pathogens. Okay. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that's the cause, but it has been linked to it. Okay. And so it might exacerbate and might actually make the uh, eating disorder just even worse. Okay. And, and one of these, like a protozoa parasite, you actually, and it does actually reside in the, in the colon, the large intestine, okay, is dentamoeba fragilis. Okay. It doesn't tend to get talked about uh, that much, but there has been a link here with dentamoeba fragilis um, in terms of like intestinal permeability and hyperpermeability. Mm. So it can actually create a lot of this type of damage in the, in the colon and the large intestine. Okay. That's definitely going to cause a lot of discomfort, obviously when the person's trying to uh, consume food and obviously cause a lot of issues even to the brain as well. Okay. Because one of the issues with certain types of protozoa parasites is that there can be these, these issues around like acetaldehyde and acetaldehyde has massive negative effects on the brain. Okay. Especially things like cell solenol. We've sort of talked about this before and that causes issues around dopamine, overstimulation of the, hate, uh, of the VTA. Okay. And once again, that would exacerbate addiction issues, dopamine problems. Okay? So, so what you're saying there, because that's pretty important. So you're saying that if there is some of these organisms that are producing these toxins and that could be yeast or it could be some parasites, the release of these toxins affects the balance of neurotransmitters and so it can actually cause someone to have more like obsessive compulsive kind of behavior traits and so and like i i know both of us would have experienced this in clients where we then address the yeast or the parasites or whatever is causing that and various sort of you know addictive kind of behaviors have then lessened or or disappeared ultimately in those clients correct i mean like even like in the instance of like acetaldehyde so obviously this applies to candida and yeast and fungi, okay, CFO. But when it permeates up through the blood-brain barrier, it forms these other chemical compounds. And one of them is tetrahydropapaverin. Okay, not sounds technical, but that affects the biosynthesis of serotonin. And you are more prone to anxiety, mm. social phobias, nervousness. Mm. So issues essentially, yes, around dopamine, but also serotonin. So the person just not feeling happy, mood disorders. I guess where this becomes really complex okay is like how can you really fix what's going on in the brain okay if you don't really fix what's going on with, within the gastrointestinal tract and i would actually mm. argue i just don't think you can fix what's going on in the brain okay and, I, and i'm only using one example here yeah because there's also been a link to issues around melatonin like 400 times more melatonin is produced within the gastrointestinal tract and this is really coming down to just like your microbiome balances Okay, like lactobacillus plays a bit of a role here, even things like streptococcus, enterococcus, okay, because we actually need these microbiome to actually help with things like 5-HTP, 5-hydroxyl-tryptophan, serotonin, melatonin, and, and these really all help with like mood stabilization and making us feel happy and all that type of stuff. So if we're not really realigning the microbiome ratios and obviously helping to, you know, fix the ratios of the opportunistic bacteria. Okay. Like how can you really fix what's going on from a mood perspective? Mm. And so it becomes a bit of a, a catch 22 in terms yeah. of like saying, well, you don't want food restriction. Okay. But if you don't have some sort of 
some restriction, I'm just saying some restriction in terms of stuff that would really aggravate the protozoa parasite or aggravate the bacterial issues that you've got, um, then I, I just think it's going to make, make it really hard to make inroads into obviously a lot of the complications that are going on from a neurotransmitter perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's worth noting that obviously there's various different forms of disordered eating. And so these are each going to play out a little bit differently. Now, I would, I would suggest that for a, a lot of people, obviously I don't want to make a blanket statement here, but for a lot of people, if they didn't have a gut issue before they developed disordered eating, because obviously there can be other elements in life and other you know events that can trigger things, but if they didn't have a gut issue beforehand, they would almost certainly have a gut issue afterwards. And so even if there wasn't a, a yeast overgrowth or a parasite or, or something like that, which was causative or, or playing into the etiology of it, after someone's been experiencing disorder eating for an extended period of time, you know, what you were talking about, melatonin and, you know, serotonin and various neurotransmitters, there is going to be some impact on neurotransmitters, on mood, um, and ultimately on the gut lining just due to that process over time. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's, there's lots of different pathogens and, and bacterial complications that could actually be uh, exacerbating this, even like potentially negative gram bacteria and LPS. Okay, because LPS damages the blood brain barrier outside of the blood brain barrier. Okay, and what's actually one of the most important compounds to protect the blood brain barrier? Well, it's a powerful antioxidant, it's a kamikaze antioxidant. Okay, and that's melatonin. Okay, yeah. a powerful hormone. Like some people think it's just one of the most powerful antioxidants in the body, but that, that's actually really required for the integrity of the blood brain barrier and actually to help with the tight junction proteins in the blood brain barrier, like occludin and claudine 5. And then because a lot of individuals with eating disorders, and once again, I'm not saying this is a cure, I'm just saying it can be supportive, okay, can respond quite well to melatonin supplementation. Mm -hmm. And is, is the reason that there's so, like huge issues around the melatonin, okay? So yes, it could be the severity of the damage in the gut lining, okay? But also it can be the damage that's actually occurring to the blood brain barrier and putting more mm. pressure on the melatonin and then that allows like pro-inflammatory proteins to now permeate up through the blood brain barrier yeah. and the instance of something like lps now you affect the the prefrontal cortex well that's critical thinking so you just you know there's no lateral thinking honesty okay but it's also like goal setting dopamine yeah. the hippocampus that's emotional regulation so how can you regulate your emotions which especially when you've got like eating disorders and so forth like you you, you really got to try and regulate the emotions that are going on. But it, it, like, once again, I'm not taking away from obviously, uh, you know, seeing people who are going to help with that, uh, yeah. that emotional trauma and that childhood trauma and hundred percent, I'm recommending that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, seeing a therapist, okay. Someone who's really going to help with that, with that, that past trauma. Okay. Like I really, I say that's, that's necessary in this process. And I, I'd also say things that are just going to help to, mitigate the stress load yeah okay yeah. so like metacognition and meditation and heart math and you know these these things that we we do talk about okay like we want to make it clear obviously we put a huge emphasis on the gut and obviously the impact of these pathogens and these microorganisms obviously we're talking about this frequently but we, we're not taking away from the fact that a lot of your problems start in the brain but we're just saying that the area that bears the brunt of that most of the time is the gut lining okay and then you you get the gut issue and then the gut issue just exacerbates uh, and even creates 
bigger problems in the yeah. brain and so you've got bigger problems in the brain and then bigger problems here then you exacerbate even more damage in the gut lining it's just a vicious loop it's yeah. a vicious loop okay. yeah and and i guess you know it's important to note the part of the the piece of the puzzle that we're sort of talking about is that gut piece and so you know like you said you're not taking away from the benefit of cbt or hypnotherapy or you know whatever it is for that person but that's we're not going to see you into a podcast of hypnotherapy because that's not what you and i do so what can we do from a gut perspective to address this stuff and these are some of the things we can do and you know you talked about melatonin and a intervention i would take with these clients is i actually want them to be feeling as good as possible this is almost the only time i do this right so for clients like this i want them to ultimately just feel good while we're making some of these changes, right? Because if I can get them in a state of mood and, and cognition where they're just not feeling as anxious about things or they're not feeling as stressed about things or as down about things, it's going to be a lot easier to make some of those, those behavior changes. And then eventually those are going to become habit. And then I can take them off those things that are just making them feel good. So initially I'm actually open to using, you know, things like you mentioned melatonin, but also I would be potentially using adaptogens here. It'll depend on the person what I'm going to use, but, you know, it could be things to help regulate cortisol, maybe ashwagandha, rhodiola, maybe stuff to help with dopamine. Maybe I'll even use an L-tyrosine here. Not that I normally use single form amino acids, but potentially here I could. Um, you know, if there's low hormonal output and, and everything across the board is low and DHEA is low and everything's low, maybe I'll use a little bit of trigonemaline with these clients, you know, that can help dampen some of the anxiety that they're feeling. And then like, you know, again, if we just get them feeling better, that's going to make those changes for them so much easier. Maybe even some 5-HTP help with serotonin. So that's one step I'm taking with these clients is whatever I can do and still things like meditation and, and earthing, you know, one study found a 24% reduction in cortisol, just some earthing. So if they're high stress people, then getting outdoors and nature, getting sun, all these, all these little things that are so easy to overlook, they all play a big part here just in helping stabilize how that person's feeling initially. Sure. And even just maybe things just to support the neurons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and that could be something like, Omega three fatty acid DHA. Yes, absolutely, I mean, that's yeah, a must. Yeah, like ninety seven percent of all the omega three fatty acids in the brain are DHA. Okay, um, and even with know, dopamine will help as well, won't it? Yeah, yeah, and and like and even you might like we talked about organ meats. Well, even something like a beef brain. Yeah, okay, yeah. because beef brain. Um, yes, it helps with like phosphatidylserine, helps to block cortisol. That's probably going to be pretty important. But also it helps with BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Okay, So that's actually, actually going to help with the formation of new neurons and help with the, the, the repair of the neurons, okay? like the damaged neurons, and also help with the synaptic cleft. So it actually helps with the uptake of neurotransmitters. So you also could go down the line of like things that actually help with BDNF. You know, so, and- so if that's one step, so we, we're supporting them, supporting neurologically, supporting mood, neurotransmitters, all of this. So then what? They're still experiencing these food sensitivities. So what do we do with that? Yeah, like, like well, one more thing, because I just thought of some other <laughs> okay. things. Yeah, okay. yeah. But I, I'd probably look at some things that just also, you know, support the brain just even a little bit more like NAC, I, I would say. Yeah. It's, it's so yeah. good around like psychiatric disorders, neurodegenerative yes. diseases. Okay. But it also helps to, because it actually helps with glutamate homeostasis. Now, yep. understand that a lot of psychiatric disorders are linked to excessive glutamate activity yes. in the brain. Okay, so it just helps to calm and relax the brain. I think with NAC, we're always looking at it from that mucolytic sort of yeah. perspective. It's so important for the brain. And even like, you know, something like a niacinamide, you know, because that has actually been used. Okay, and I think they used it with 
alcoholics initially, like yeah. alcoholics anonymous. Okay. I, yep. I, I think it's really underrated from that perspective because it's like a tranquilizer for the brain. So it actually helps with like bipolar, schizophrenia, psychosis, ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorders, addiction. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's used for addiction, isn't it? It's used yeah, for yeah. Like when people come off like benzos and stuff like that. Yeah. So once again, I'm not saying it's, it's a cure. Okay. But anything that's just going to help to, just from a psychiatric perspective, yeah. okay, neurological, just calm the brain, relax it. Yep. Uh, and that's going to make it a lot easier for the individual to do yep. what? Well, just to stick to, to what they need to stick to because they just don't have this, I guess, this chaos going yes. on in the brain. I know I've sort of detoured a little bit away from that. Okay, no, that but- were all really important points. I'm glad you brought those up. And you know, one that's also a little bit of a variance, but also... Things like blood sugar management, I think that's so important to look at as well because if someone, and this is really common, I see this a lot with people who have a background of disordered eating where whether it's due to nutrient deficiency or or stress or what, but there's a lot of really unstable blood glucose. And so if someone is going hypoglycemic, what's that going to do to mood? What's it going to do to stress? What's it going to do to catecholamine? It's like everything's just going to go shoot up. And so of course that's going to make life a whole lot harder if you're experiencing hypoglycemia as well. So whatever you can do to stabilize blood sugar, that's really important. Then what? Yeah. So I think, I think like one aspect is that I guess what people are going to say, like, is it, is it better just like in this instance with the eating disorders, am I better just to try and get in the food and not worry about, well, I need to restrict that food and stay away from that food. I just think like, yes, it's difficult. So we're not taking away from that, but I think what people need to understand is that, we need to find some sort of balance here, okay? Yeah. I think what, what you would say is like, what are the non-negotiables? You need to establish what are the pathogens that you're dealing with, okay? Mm-hmm. Like what's the bacterial complications and really what foods are really aggravating, whether it's the parasitic infection, whether it's something like SIBO, negative gram bacteria. So what foods are really aggravating those and what, what foods are just going to create more inflammation, raise more pro-inflammatory proteins, cause more inflammation in the brain. And it's just going to make it harder for that individual to stick to things. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And really to, to, to make progress. So there, there has to be, there, there has to be a, a bit of a, a bit of a compromise here. Is there something you want to like? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the time what I'd say here is initially I'd say, look, I want people to be in tune with symptoms and sometimes that's hard, but you know, it might be a matter of, okay, what, you know, if we're talking about things like SIBO, okay. What foods are bloody? How do you feel after you eat X? How do you feel after you eat broccoli? And then say someone says, okay, you know, I've noticed broccoli and onion and garlic and these things bloat me. Then it's, it's important to then frame how this stuff is affecting you in terms of that doesn't mean you eat broccoli and now you're going to die. You know, it's, it's not the end of the world. This is not an inherently bad food that you must avoid for your whole life. But you just told me you ate broccoli and you felt really bloated. Now, that's not the end of the world, right? But do you want to be feeling bloated? Is that going to make your life easier? Is that going to take you closer to your goal of feeling healthy and being healthy? No, it's, it's probably going to hinder that. So it's important to not give things more meaning or more power than they actually need, you know? So there's a, there may be a, a fairly potentially lengthy list of foods that might fall into that category of, you know what, this food's not taking you forward. It's not making you feel good. It's not serving you well, but you eat it. What's the worst that happens? You're bloated for a few hours. That's not the end of the world. I don't need you to beat yourself up if you eat a little bit of onion, but it's going to be intelligent for you just for how you're feeling to limit that. But then, like you said, there's going to be some uh, what I would class as more non-negotiables. And for me, when I work with clients who have a history of disordered eating, 
I need the client to be at a point at a state where they are open to non-negotiables and some people may not be. And for me, that's the line of where I can or can't coach our client. And so if they're at a point where they can't have any non-negotiables and they say, I need every single food to be on the table, I need every single food to be an option for me to consume at this point in time, that's okay. But ultimately they're then going to need to go through you know, the, the other therapies we were talking about before, CBT and, and whatever else. Because for me, there needs to be, depending on the individual and the issue, a couple of non-negotiables. And that could that list for me needs to be as short as possible, but it's normally going to contain three, four, five different foods, right? So it might be gluten, it might be sugar, it might be alcohol, you know, depending on what the issue is. Is that is that sort of what you would do a little bit? Yeah, I mean, like... It's, it's obviously hard to dive into it deeper because yeah. it's really going to depend on what's really coming up for that individual. I mean, I, yeah. can, I, can, I can use examples, but, you know, because I did mention like dentamine fragilis, yeah, yeah. Okay? like I would say that there's just certain foods that are going to be a little bit more problematic here. I don't think you're going to be that limited around like, you know, a lot of carbohydrates, okay? But I would say, you know, simple sugars, they could be a little bit more problematic here. And it might be simple sugars that, yes, I'm not taking away from them being like, you know, even like like antifungal, antibacterial, yeah, okay. So there's benefits there, okay. But once again, just based on the particular, you know, parasitic infection, that just might be a little bit too problematic. And so maybe in the instance of the prozoic parasite, staying away from those simple sugars, whether it's like honey, maple syrup, rice malt syrup. Now, once again, I'm, I understand that things like maple syrup and rice malt syrup can be fine around the FODMAP realms and SIBO, mm-hmm. okay. But in this instance, okay, they could be a little bit more problematic, yeah, okay. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, once again, I would just say that, and, and probably because of the damage in the gut lining, maybe things like, you know, lectins could be a little bit more problematic in this instance. Okay, let's I'd generally say things like, you know, chickpeas and kidney beans and black beans, and uh, these things would be a little bit more problematic. But once again, I'm just, I'm just saying that like gliden might just be a bit, uh, too much of an exacerbator. Okay, um, so it's just totally going to depend on what's really coming up for the individual. Yeah, yeah. And again, that should be, you know, as as small a list as possible of those things that are absolutely, you know, off limits. Um, And that's why I do think working with a coach is worthwhile because then that can be a a conversation. You can sort of, you know, help work out together what that looks like. And, And again, so much of it is in the story that we tell ourselves. You know, it's not, you're not cutting out X, Y, Z food, because, you know, you're not allowed to eat this and you're limiting yourself and, and, you know, whatever. But what you're doing is you're asking yourself, what goal am I working towards? I'm working ultimately towards a goal of feeling better, not experiencing X, Y, Z symptom, feeling like I've got energy. And so I'm going to make decisions that are going to get me to that point. And so that, again, you know, that doesn't mean that suddenly you eat one food and you're never going to get to that goal but it does mean that that is the lens out of which you're choosing to eat. It's the lens out of which you're choosing to live. And so, you know, that sort of just eating a food because it's now an option, that's not necessarily going to be the food that's going to make you feel best. You know, I see this a lot of the time with clients or people who who might say, oh, you know, I'm I'm going to eat a donut just because I can. It's like, yes, you can. We're not arguing that you can't, but ask yourself, is that going to make you feel the way you want to feel? And if it's, and I don't mean the way you want to feel psychologically, I don't mean do you feel guilty afterwards, but how is your body going to feel? Are you going to feel lethargic? Are you going to feel bloated? Are you going to feel inflamed? And if it is, yes, you can still do it. We could all make any decision we want, but is that the decision that you want to be making at this point in time? And for some people, like we need to acknowledge for some people, 
that's this is going to be too high of a bar. Some people are not going to be at that point where they can ask those questions, they can have those conversations, they can have those, you know, still have foods that they're limiting. So it is going to depend on where you are in that healing journey. But for me as a coach, that's kind of where I want to see those clients be. And that's how I would try to balance those two different things. Yeah, I just think people need to understand, like, if we just want to speed up the healing process and and, and the, the whole idea in terms of like what we're trying to do. So yes, there might be some restriction here. Yes, there might be, you are eliminating certain types of foods. Okay, but once again, we would with someone who does have like an eating disorder and there is there is some issues around that we would just go well these are the most problematic and i, yeah. I just think you'd find that the list is not that long yeah no. okay it's not that restrictive and yes we might go a lot more restrictive with some other people because they're just able to do it yeah okay yeah. so that can really once again uh, vary from individual to individual but it just all it also comes down to like i just don't know how you can fix what's going on in the brain and then how can you actually fix the, the 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 disorder the eating disorder if you can't really fix what's going on in the brain because you can't really fix what's going on in the gut and you might be piling all this food in just so you can get the food in okay but it's just creating more problems within the gastrointestinal tract and ultimately it's creating more issues in the brain so it just it just comes down it's just this vicious cycle and really if you want to help yourself heal you've got to you've got to get out of that vicious cycle You've, you've got to close off the loops ultimately, okay? Mm. And generally to, to minimize the inflammation that's taking place in the brain and to actually help with the neurotransmitter balance, okay? You're going to have to stem the flow of what's going yeah. on in the gut. I just can't see how you, like me personally, I just don't think you can go to the, the brain first, okay? And that's just going to fix everything that's going on in the gut, mm. okay? Like mm. it, might have, it might have some impact and might mm. actually help, Okay. But I think you've, you've got to fix the damage in the gut because it's just going to be really, really hard to make inroads into the, 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 the complications in the, in the brain. Yeah, yeah. Okay, hopefully there's a bit of food for thought. We didn't know how that was going to go. <laughs> so hopefully it's, it's a bit, of a, hopefully it's a bit more of a rabbit hole than we thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if, you, if you stuck with us to the end, then congratulations. Thank you and well done. But that is a wrap on our first question and answer type episode we might do this again in the future potentially depending on what feedback we get i don't know um but thank you guys for your questions you guys who did ask uh, yeah sent over some questions the other day so we appreciate all of you uh, and if you do like this let us know leave us a review and if it was helpful we'll do another one of these in the future yeah great thanks jake thanks guys thanks so much for listening guys as always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.